the second part will be uh, a suggestion of how a precursor to the Evo grid might be constructed within the time frame and the lifetime of this PhD researcher, uh, and where the Evo grid might take us in the 21st century. Should it be built, should the full version be built? Uh, following this, I'm really happy to, to detail the proposed EvoGrid architecture and take any questions as to its implementation, testing, and what original contributions to science and technology might result from the work. Um, other documents have been submitted, including a sample, two sample dissertation uh, thesis chapters and the whole framework, um, which I can provide to you if you're interested. I'm happy to do that. Um, in the cold spring of 1951, deep within a nondescript building on the grounds of the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, where actually I'm a visitor, um, in New Jersey, it was very warm. The glow of 2,600 vacuum tubes lighting up 40 Williams tubes, and these are like television monitors. You can try to picture this. Across whose surfaces flickered 32 by 32 bit patterns. Uh, this system provided an excellent heat source for the building, but it was also something very new and profound. Uh, Desuited visitors from the Atomic Energy Commission, wearing jackets very much like this, uh, some of them, uh, arrived uh, in, this, in this strange building uh, with loads and loads of punch cards. And on the punch cards were some of the first computer programs. Uh, they loaded these programs into this, the world's first fully addressable digital stored program computer, which was designed by John von Neumann. Remarkably, the machine processed 24 hours a day for 60 days without fault. And this was an amazing achievement for that time period. Uh, and then uh, the digital computing era was born because of this machine. Everything else, everything that you have in your cell phone and your laptops will not come out of this, that brick building, the whole thing. Uh, just over one year later, uh, printouts of the many calculations in hand, those same scientists exploded Mike, that's all in uppercase. Uh, the super was known by Edward Teller and, and company. It was the hydrogen bomb blowing the Iniwetok Atoll out of existence in a previously serene South Pacific. A year after this, rather dis destructive, distinctive but destructive beginning to the digital revolution, an Italian-Norwegian, think of that combination for a moment, <laughs> uh, researcher named Niels Al Baricelli. <laughs> so he liked pizza, but he could stand uh, eating it in the winter. Um, investigating the role of symbiosis in the origin of life, which was a big topic at that point. Remember, Norbert Wiener had come out with cybernetics and whatnot, and, and people were, were for the first time actually looking at technology, post-World War II technology, and living systems and trying to, to, to make associations. So this fellow, Varicelli, arrived at the Institute for Advanced Study, and he breathed a new life into that machine. Varicelli created a five kilobyte, think of that, five kilobyte, that's a 2,600 vacuum tubes, um, Universe. He created a five kilobyte universe in the IAS Institute for Advanced Study machine and inoculated it with what he called numerical symbioorganisms. Now, this is 1953. I'm going to read you a, a quote from an article by uh, George Dyson, who's the son of uh, Freeman Dyson, 
who is a member of the Institute. And you can see him if you go there having tea at 3 o'clock every day. Uh, it's quite an English place, actually, even though it's in New Jersey. Uh, but having grown up in the neighborhood as a kid, they would go into the old barn, which has since been torn down, and they would find remnants of this machine. It was truly ghosts of the machine, all the tubes left over. And the kids would actually tear apart and, and steal these things. Uh, but it was the remnants of the first uh, computer. Uh, so he got very interested in this as an adult and wrote a wonderful book, which I have here. It's kind of a Bible on the history of this called Darwin Among the Machines. And uh, as you know, Darwin's birthday, 200th birthday, was on, on Thursday. And I did a, a talk at UCL uh, kind of about, about this, reference to this. So um, here's something from a later piece of writing uh, by Dyson. Uh, which is sort of beautifully done. He's a beautiful writer and uh, re-describes this visually. Baricelli's universe was designed to appear unbounded to any of its inhabitants. The universe was cyclic, so if you got to one edge, you came out on the other, uh, with 512 generations. And the code was written so that various mutation norms could be employed in selected regions of the universe. Only five out of each 100 generations were recorded during the reconnaissance. So they ran a lot of these runs, but only recorded a few, because look at the machine they're, they're working with. Interesting phenomena were then investigated in more detail. These included symbiosis, incorporation of parasitic genes into their hosts, and a fruitful crossing of gene sequences, which suggested sex. Now, we think of this as happening in the artificial life movement of the late 80s and early 90s. This is happening in 1953. So this is fascinating to me, because I'm a computer historian, too. But, he reported in August 1953, in no case has the evolution led to higher and higher organisms. Something is missing. If one wants to explain the formation of organs and, and faculties as complex as those of living organisms, no matter how many mutations we make, the numbers will always remain numbers. They will never become living organisms. Two, the two essential characteristics of real biology were missing. Environmental diversity and the interplay between the genotype and the phenotype. And genotype is the coding sequence, phenotypes the bodies. There weren't any bodies. Uh, that allows Dar Darwinian evolution to advance. There is no a priori reason for assuming that other the classes of symbioorganisms could not reach the same complexity and efficiency characteristic of living organisms on this planet. This is Baricelli's claim. But he knew that this would take some time. So this is the very beginnings of, of my research question. Baricelli's work preceded, as we pointed out before, the formal foundation of a field called artificial life by a full 34 years. And he died in 1993 just as modern practitioners like Chris Langton and Tom Ray were revivifying his symbioorganisms without knowing that it had been done before, which is, is fascinating. It often happens. Uh, surprisingly, these practitioners also found that their simulations generated a limited set of interesting self-organized phenomena and then could be pushed no further. It's almost as if there's an invisible wall was encountered. This is a glass wall. As one can see through it, you can say to yourself, we know how living systems work, even simple ones, but our digital organisms can never get there. 
but we can see where they could go. We could dream it up, but we can't get there. This, so uh, any life we can see in a Petri dish, we can say, oh, it's kind of digital. It sort of looks like a computer simulation, but it's a big jump between what we do, what you see on computer screens in these simulations and what's in the Petri dish. A decade ago, at our groundbreaking conference, which Sarah Diamond uh, uh, made happen um, in Banff, at uh, the groundbreaking conference at the Burgess Shale in Canada, Tom Ray shared with me wistfully that his Tierra symbioorganisms needed to take the next step into multicellularity or express any kind of body plan from their simple form of gene strings. But who was going to work on it and what would be the next step? He seemed to sort of have run to the end of, end of the, the tape. I believe that this glass wall is, in the words of UCLA graduate student Brian Allen, a complexity plateau. And as we journey into the 21st century, I believe we have the opportunity to break through that plateau. In 2007, Professor Richard Gordon, who you've heard me talk about before, he's actually my lead outside advisor, uh, invited me to contribute to a volume of essays considering science, faith, and evolution. I created an essay titled The God Detector, which postulated that the simple act of, of copying underlay the whole structure of biology, technology, and culture. Got to make copies of things. That's, that's the primary driver of all three of those things. And that if one was to find evidence for God meddling in the machinery of the living universe, it would be sufficient to watch copying really closely. In that same volume, which I hold right here, which I'm going to hold up, it's actually, it had its London debut on Thursday at the Bartlett School. I heard this, very heavy for, to carry back on your luggage. Um, Professor Gordon relates a challenge arising from physicist Fred Hoyle in 1984. I'm just going to read a bit of this to you. So this is what Fred Hoyle uh, said in 1984. In a popular lecture, I once unflatteringly described the thinking of these scientists as junkyard mentality. He's talking about origin of life scientists. Since this reference became widely and not quite accurately quoted, I will repeat it here. A junkyard contains all the bits and pieces of Boeing 747, dismembered and in disarray. A whirlwind happens to blow through the yard. What is the chance of it? After its passage, a fully assembled 747 will be found standing there, so small as to be negligible, even if a tornado were to blow through enough junkyards to fill the whole universe. And what Richard Gordon poses in the same book where I have the God Detector chapter was that uh, a whole generation of artificial life enthusiasts take up Fred Hoyle's challenge that in a way they simulate the tornado going through the junkyard of parts and come up with something we would all agree is alive in the A-life sense, in the artificial life sense, from components that are not alive in the artificial life sense. And this has sort of been all week during the Darwin celebrations, this has been a theme about how can life arise from non-life. So what he's talking about is artificial life arising from artificial non-life. So you can kind of get your, your head around that. So in 2008, when I, I received an, an email from Elizabeth on, actually on New Year's Eve of 2007, <laughs> saying you have to get your things in 
the, the rules may change soon. I think this is a very good sort of hard sell approach. <laughs> the rules are changing. So I said, oh, I better do it. Uh, so be, be forewarned. Um, and the rules are changing. Uh, in 2008, I determined to take up the dual challenge posed by Baricelli and Gordon and submitted for your consideration. The following research question in pursuit of research leading to the doctorate philosophy. The research question I am calling the quest for the evolution grid, or EVO grid for short. So here it is. The EVO grid seeks to show that through the creation of a rich physics simulation environment, the glass wall representing the complexity plateaus may be penetrated and a whole new class of self-organized behavior might be observed. Given enough time and computing resources likely to be available for a large computing grid, that's why it's called a grid, uh, a future EVO grid may be able to generate the apocryphal origin of artificial life, or our artificial origin of life, depending on how you want to say it. Uh, dreamed of by so many generations of alchemists, writers, artists, and technologists. So what are the key elements of such a proof of concept precursor to the EVO grid? Because you can't build the evil grid as described in one PhD term, or probably even one lifetime. But there are important precursors you could build. So let's pull out a laundry list. The precursors I've identified are the simulation of a large number of basic objects, you could call them quanta or particles, existing in an artificial universe without having canonical physics derived from analogs in the earthly world of oceans, lakes, and ponds. And what I'm calling canonical is you kind of pull yourself back from the world and you say, things stick to each other, but some things are fell from each other and some things fall to the bottom and some things are resisted when they're trying to move around by other things. And some things get hot when they get into contact. And some things take heat away from other things. You, those are canonical properties. Those you could abstract out and say there's a laundry list of them. Uh, cell biologist Ursula Goodenough, we just stayed at Goodenough College, but I don't think there's, there's a relation, notes in her poetic volume, The Sacred Depths of Nature, that chemistry of the sort that leads to us can only occur where the building blocks are not frozen in place with only minimal encounters with the nearest neighbors, like a solid, like in a brick. These just don't move, thick as a brick. And where the reacting parts are not so dispersed as, a, as in a gas, or energized with too much heat, sort of a bubbling soup pot, as to be able to form bonds. So liquid water seems to be an ideal environment for the chemical origin of life, and therefore is a prudent choice as an analog for simulating a precursor to an artificial one. So liquid water is the model. The physics should be variable. This is describing the elements of, a, of an EVO grid precursor. As the best settings of a starting virtual reality are only going to be known after you run it a lot. Because what you're trying to do is to run a simulator that generates interesting things that are happening. Self-organization, things sticking to other things, things forming loops and, and strings, because that seems to have been the idea of how chemical life got started. So in the simulation, you want your simulation to make that happen, but you don't know the starting parameters that are good until you run it for a while. So these runs are going to be exploring a huge potential solution space, the solution space of how things get self-organized, which is very big. It's bigger, actually, mathematically than it would be in, in chemistry. It's a lot bigger. 
or alternate universes might have different solutions. Therefore, culling, a culling down of that solution space would be dramatically empowered by varying the starting physics, then looking for self-organization, and then shifting the physics again if the resulting space looks promising. So it's almost like you, you, you start out one little simulation bucket, and if it doesn't generate anything cool after a while, you just you throw it away and you, you, you change, you make gravity a little bit more so that things sort of fall to the bottom a bit more. And you try it again and things fall to the bottom and they're, they're quite interesting, but then they don't react as they pile up on each other. And then you say, well, we need a bit of gravity, but we need a bit more stickiness. So you change the slider on the stickiness. And you actually don't have to do this uh, by looking at it. You do it by automatically detecting the patterns and then automatically running new simulations. So you have this massive multiplier factor. So in this way, the evil grid precursor simulations would traverse the peaks and values, the valleys of this problem with the ever more optimal tuning of the dials and levers of virtual physics. Of course, the above mode of the work implies the creation of an observer function to drive the cycles of the test setup, execution, non-biasing sampling, and post-processing. And what would the observer function look for? Well, Doan Farmer of the Santa Fe Institute was written 20 years ago that you, you look for persistent patterns in space and time. So if there's a little genome emerging, you'll see it. You'll see lots of copies of it, maybe with a few variations. If there's a behavior emerging, if something has actually figured out how to move, you're going to see a movement pattern that's repeated over and over again. Because these simulations are giant. They're like the original machine in, in New Jersey. They don't have a visual interface. If you, if you put a visual interface on these things, it slows them down, and, and they're running much faster than, than, than humans can see, and they're bigger. They're trillions of particles. They may be running on, on a million computers. There's no way for you to see them. It's just too fast. It's almost like real chemistry. It's really hard to see real chemistry happening. So teleological questions, and teleological, I, I mean, um, is it a design? Is it a hand of God? This is a teleological question. Uh, you, you can ask Shira if she's out here about, about that. Uh, teleological questions will arise because we could say to ourselves, through our coding and our observations, are we being intelligent designers in here, or artificial gods, uh, or of this potential proto-life, even though we keep our hands out of it directly. So you're running the simulation, and you're not going in there saying, I'm going to build something and see if it if it has some behaviors, you're sort of starting with parameters and say, run. Now, is that enough of a separation that you are not influencing? You're not a designer. You're not being an artificial designer. An implementation of the evil grid has gone through my mind, generations of my own design and thought, including neural nets and the hot field model, which I wrote in the 1980s. Uh, store and forward finite machine, state machines, which I wrote in, 19, in the 90s, and recently, uh, Haslocker and Fredkin's gas lab automata, which are like fantastic grids uh, from the 2000s. But each of these designs, they show promise, but in thought experiments and in actual runs of software, they prove not to be rich enough to generate the physics for an evil grid. Uh, and they're also some of them are too computing intensive. Because the real, the real goal is to get performance, performance, performance. <coughs> So, of course, you want to get there within a researcher's lifetime kind of thing, even with modest goals. The original Bar-Shelley universe of whole numbers 
returns as a simple yet compelling alternative. This is from the 1953 design. Each particle in the evil grid could be represented as a 32 by 32 set of 16-bit or 32-bit integers, representing a cornucopia of internal states and physics property settings. The evil grid universe could be a series of slabs of numbers across which these particle arrays would slip and slide and transpose their own state and by simple masking uh, the state of the underlying world. I believe this architecture is not only eminently computable, scalable, and observable, but also possesses the characteristic richness of physics and easy dynamic parameter variability demanded by the size of the search bit. So that's a whole lot of but that, that is in one sentence why I think this architecture will work. And in this incarnation, the 2009-2010 incarnation, as opposed to the 1953 version, uh, it would not be combined to one stack of 2,600 vacuum tubes in the New Jersey countryside, but today be able to float freely in the vast sea of cyberspace. You can connect these things to computing grids at UC Berkeley, for example, that where people sign up and they operate a screensaver Say, I want to use SETI at home, or I want to operate a fun screensaver, and I'll put my computer in here. And then suddenly, you've got a million computers running little bits of your simulation for free. So it's a huge amount of computing. And a, a, fr a friend of mine runs that, that network, which is handy. Uh, next, I would like to present you a short animation piece produced by our lead 3D modeler on our NASA projects, Ryan Norcus. This is a piece laying out the vision for both the early evil grid and its ultimate progeny. So I'll run that now. So this this piece was released on YouTube in December 18th, and it's gotten a lot of comments already. And um, it's a really great way to get collaboration because it's a message in a bottle. You put it out, and who knows who gets in touch with you, um, and you just collect all kinds of ideas and people. So it's a it's if you're if you're in if you have this as a skill set, it's not a bad thing to do early on in your research. It also is a very good mechanism for uh, helping yourself define what, what you're working on. So we now arrive at the, the final part of the Proto-Viva. I'm calling it this a Proto-Viva presentation, where I'll be happy to take questions to explain the proposed EvoGrid precursor physics simulator, which is the research question in more detail and also suggest where it may make an original contribution to science and technology. The method that I'm using is the hypothetical deductive method with a lot of quantitative analysis, as you can guess, but there's a creative part to it um, because what you're seeing here is, is a creative part to it. We are human beings. We are in the living world. We know and sense when we see aliveness, and nobody really has characterized that. But Good film animators always know how to make a character feel and seem alive, even if it's just motions of polygons. We just know it when we see it. And so uh, luckily, I've had the, the resources of Ryan Norcus, the creative resources. Turns out there's an animator in, in London here who saw this on YouTube and wants to do a whole new version. I had coffee with him a couple days ago. He's brilliant. I mean, he's well, Ryan is more on our engineering side. This guy is, is a, he's a sort of film animator. So he wants to do another treatment of it. So we're going to be collaborating on that and hopefully get a little time in the day Wednesday to go to see him. But that's just giving you an example. Uh, another part of the creative aspect 
comes out of books like this because what if what if this when this project becomes known and, and public and I, I generally do all my projects in public and that everything's available all the time on the website um, there will be all kinds of people questioning are you creating the gray goo that will consume the world are you are you trying to show that God didn't create the heavens and the earth and whatnot and so that that will stir all that up and that's part of the creative dialogue around this kind of a project. It can be quite explosive, I can tell you, really. Um, so you have to, Richard Dawkins is extremely good at handling this kind of thing. I don't really have any training, but I sort of watched videos of him and he's, he spoke at, at um, I guess it was Trinity University. Jerry Falwell invited him to come and speak to the whole university. He did it. You know, and people thought he was a gentleman and some people were kind of convinced by his arguments and other. So, I mean, that's exactly the kind of, of thing you need to have. You need to have an open dialogue and, and listen. So the, the qualitative methods that one might use is if you are building, if someone does build, and we don't know yet how to build a good visualizer into an engine like this, but if that's a qualitative and creative skill on its own to show what is effectively a whole lot of integers doing things with each other, doing a dance with each other. How do you show that so that the human brain can interpret that and say, that has almost a life likeness too, or I'm a, I'm a chemist and I can see that and that looks like chemistry to me is going on. So that's, that's a very creative, qualitative part of, of the project. And by doing the movie early on, I think I've been trying to move that forward. Um, as to, to the effects, the, the importance for science and technology of this kind of thing, I think of this work as being laying a foundation stone on a whole new field that I, I words came into my mind last year calling it evolution technologies where there's a group that is doing what is called living technologies in Denmark they, they try to build protocells up from chemistry from basics from scratch it's the protocells movement there's a new book that's come out and they call it living technologies I'm trying to approach it from the other end this is not artificial intelligence this is low 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 level stuff but I'm trying to say you've got chemistry here you've got uh, evolution uh, living technologies in that space and evolution technologies is saying we can approximate your chemistry and start running our simulations and your chemistry runs faster than our simulator but in 10 years or 20 years we'll outrun you because we'll have 100,000 core processors or we'll have 10 million computers in the network so that for a little little one centimeter or a milliliter of, of chemical solution our simulator will run faster than a real chemical solution and that'll be a major uh, point because then we can look ahead. We can try things out that might might look like the chemistry. It, when you can do a full Evo grid in 20, 30, 40 years with a, a billion or a trillion microprocessors driving it, you can simulate an entire cell down to the every element of the cell. So you could build a model of a, of a cell and totally simulate it. And then if you're in cancer research and you're seeing how cancers come in, you could watch the lock and key mechanisms getting disturbed and how cancer actually develops. And then you could throw in agents and you could try, you could solve almost any cancer this way. So there's a huge amount of, of applications. One other application is toward the end of the 21st century when we decide that we can evolve new life forms from scratch, not just, you know, life forms that just modifying what Craig Vander is doing where he's putting a, a nucleus from one thing into the cell of another and seeing if it works. So that's just hacking existing code. 
but evolve all new life forms. And one of the one of the uses for this goes back to about a decade of work I've done with NASA, and Zan, we've been around for most of this time, is if you wanted to terraform Mars, well, the best place for life to be in Mars is where there's some water, at least, a little bit melted, the edge of the ice caps. And that's what they're looking, that's where they're drilling, and they're trying to see if life was ever there, bacterial life, really simple life. Uh, but what you could do is flip the, the question on its head and say, let's model the ice cap of Mars in, in simulation and see if any Terran biology could ever live there. Then we can predict where, where we might find life in advance. So it's a sort of a SETI search for extraterrestrial intelligence uh, reversed on its head. But then again, you might say, well, we've determined that no Earth bacteria could ever live in this environment, but we found a class of virtual bacteria that could. And we're going to we're going to make them, and we're going to put them there, and we're going to see if we can start changing the gas content of the Martian atmosphere over time, because life life is the only mechanism powerful enough to make a place habitable for us. So that's a very far future vision. But I think in, if you find any ETs out there and go to their home planet, they're probably using the power of evolution all the time to do stuff, they're, to solve hard problems and generate new life forms, and they live as symbio-organisms in their domain with life forms that they have evolved out of the understanding of how they came to be. This is a very, very common theme in science fiction, but it's most for most science fiction, it's like, this will happen one day, but nobody can give you a roadmap how to get there, and what I'm hoping to do is lay the foundations on here is how you get there, and it's lots and lots of cheap computing power, but done artfully well with a ratcheting mechanism where you solve problems faster and faster through the feedback of finding better solutions so that the human doesn't have to sit there and say, sounds good, let's run it again like, like Baricelli had to do. So the thing gets scary after a while. As the processes are getting hot, uh, the thing is finding better and better self-organizing systems. And to sort of finish this up, this, 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 this is kind of a bizarre exercise because what it also tells you is what universes are particularly good at generating life. You know, if, if life wasn't created by a creator, in which case you would say to our, our creator, why did you only generate just so little life and, you know, make eyes where the, you know, the, the nerves go cross over, all this wacky design. But there's, there's actually probably very, life is very rare in the universe. So you might actually, through this kind of simulation, come with a continuum and say, we're right here, and our universe should generate this amount of life. Um, but if you r roll the physics a little bit over here, you'd find another, an alternate universe that's just really full of life, and then roll it down here, you find a universe impossible for life to ever exist. And it'd be an interesting understanding of that. But that's sort of a big picture understanding that might emerge at, long after I'm gone of, of this kind of evolution technology. So with that, and I think I think I might be at 30 minutes, I'm not sure, but are there any questions? Bobby? Uh, you talked about um, the liquid water being already in substrate the start of the evolution ecosystem. Um, have you looked at any but I mean, the past decade of research on like an arcane thermophile on a you know, hot extreme hot extreme microbes that appear to be the most deep Yeah, and they in fact there's now a theory that, that life came from the black smokers. It's still liquid water, but 
the beauty of it is pressure, it's under a lot of pressure, so things don't tend to get balled off. And the, the lipid bilayers around cells are really rocking in hot water. It's amazing. They don't break up. And in fact, the, the, one of the ideas was that you had these, the real, the real chemical origins of life, and this is a shifting thing, but they start out as soap bubbles, or oil bubbles, forming in the water. And at the same time, there was RNA. Basically, think of them as tire, as bicycle tire uh, repair kits. Right? They, they're good at kind of fixing holes in bilipid layers. And one day, a bilipid vacuole or vesicle formed around, just like I show in the movie, formed around this bicycle repair kit, which allowed the, the soap bubble to last a little longer. And that was the key. Now, of course, the problem is then eventually it does break up. And when it, when it breaks up, it might be growing, actually continuously growing. And it breaks up, and only one bit has got the repair kit in it, and the other bit just pops. So you don't have much continuity there. But around these black smokers, around the hot water, the bilipid layer becomes a little looser, and lots of stuff pours in. And they've shown this in the lab. And the lots of stuff that's pouring in is going to the bicycle repair kit, and it's saying, Oh, bloody hell, there's so much stuff around me, I, I got to use it up. So it starts to bind it up, and then eventually it, it makes itself so long that it has two of them. And then uh, as the thing is growing, now there's two of them, and now there's two repair kits, and the two things you have the very beginnings. So that, that, that's, that all goes back to these hot reference. There's a fantastic YouTube video about this that actually was the first time I really understood it, which I'll, I'll send to you. <laughs> Two questions, and then hopefully you can get to both, but maybe not. It's okay. First, I got stuck on this idea by alternate universe, do you mean alternate dimension? And I'll throw out the other question as well. And that is, um, Stephen Jay Gould talks, talks about punctuated equilibrium. And it was the first thing I ever read that convinced me that maybe there isn't any other people or creatures out there out there in the universe. So, what do you say to that? <laughs> well, what was the first one again? Does <laughs> universe equal dimension? Because oh, are, are there other universes? Or no one, no one knows. It's sort of a fanciful theory that there's a multiple universe. That there are other. We're a flooding off of, of, of we're a cell division of universes. Is that like alternate dimensions? It, it could be thought of that, although the dimension would have all the full physics. and So it's like the Star Trek where Kirk goes to the evil Star Trek universe. <laughs> um, but the Stephen Jay Gould one's interesting because I went to see Stephen Jay Gould before we did our conference in Bound. And he said, I went up to the British Shale in 1985. I loved it. I'd love to come back. But I collapsed when I was there. My, my knees gave out. And I had to be airlifted out because I had cancer. You know, his cancer was constantly fighting this Hodgkin's lymphoma, or, or he had a lymphoma sometime. And he wished us well, and I sort of got his blessing for the event. And then we were standing up at the verge of shale, breaking open material with the with permission. Because uh, we had the paleontological crew there. The, the summer camp was there. And, and uh, Des Collins, who was running the dig there for the last 20 years, said, I don't know about punctuated equilibrium. If you look in here, right behind you, this city block long, shell deposit at 8,500 feet. It's a dramatic place. It, 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 these creatures had precursors way back, even 100 or 200 million years earlier. The genetic record shows that, that the genes were diverging. And you find little trace fossils, little swimming patterns fossils that suggest that they had an ancestor way before. So even Gould's idea that the Burgess shell represented this huge explosion um, was already being questioned in 97 by a lot of people saying, 
uh, doesn't, it's not really shown. It looks like it because we've only found one deposits crammed with things, and we don't find anything earlier, but that's an accident of geography, a geology rather than how it happened. So, Zan? Oh, well, obviously this is fascinating. Um, it would seem to me that you might want to even back up and precede the thesis by uh, saying why you've chosen to uh, do the approach of the physics Sliders in this mm -hmm. area. In other words, that's huge in itself as a number of pieces. But there's so much debate about how the origin of life actually occurred mm -hmm. that if you start out saying, well, I'm not on the origin of life, you will have all sorts of people saying, saying it, right? And um, I, I think a couple of people whose work might really interest you, but it would be a different approach to model it. It would be um, biophysicist Manfred Eigen and the idea of the hypercycle. Mm -hmm. You won a Nobel Prize in chemistry, actually, with the name Chemistry and Schuster. Um, and so that, that is the whole idea of bootstrapping and right. collaborative systems that bootstrap themselves up. And the second one, which is also bootstrapping ideas for Kaufman, um, Parker Porter, for his work on random linear networks. That would be a different approach to the slider approach. And so it would seem like a front end would be to say, well, I've chosen the slider approach for this instance reasons, which are, you know, we can justify, but it's not the only way we yeah, that's absolutely true, and, and my ignorance of these fields leads me sort of to go to the... It's a huge field. It's absolutely huge, and um, what I've done is I've assembled an advisory team. So I've got Richard Gordon, who's the co-author of this book. Um, I've got Carl Sims, and Tom, Tom Ray will probably sign up, uh, Larry Yeager, and uh, uh, Pete Hodd at the Institute for Advanced Study, and Dimitri Drisopoulos' group at UCLA, and I'm just... You know, yourself, you're, I would count you as one of the advisors, external advisors. But I'm, I'm getting together a very large group that will hopefully whittle it down. I, I'm definitely taking a certain approach, which is proto, like before showing any kind of self-organizing phenomena, irrespective of model and letting it emerge on its own from basic particles. So I'm kind of getting off scot-free in a way. I'm not taking a position in that I'm trying to to let the phenomena emerge. I actually disagree with that because you're, you are taking a particle approach as opposed to a collaborative approach. Okay. Both were on the collaboration particles and how. But the particles yeah. may start collaborating. That's yeah, the thing. defining the particles first as opposed to defining the collaboration first and letting that. Mm -hmm. You have to. You have to the yeah. I, mean, I, don't see how you can, I don't see how you can start. Collaboration. I mean, the particles, if you're talking about the origins of life, the origins have to start from something that wasn't collaborative. No, I don't see that. Actually, I don't see how that's important. I don't see that at all. You're just pausing the collaboration. I don't see how it's. survive in these across the knowledge domain you mentioned the advisory group oh. practical <coughs> to that you know how you're gonna survive the multidisciplinary aspects the knowledge knowledge of you I have to really decide what fits the, the experiment and what doesn't. Um, 
and, and, and I think in parallel, what I'll be doing is writing is kind of the alternate theses because it'll be saying this model is one we've chosen, but there are many other research directions and variants on this, and that's how you build a new field. Because if you not only show your own approach, but you acknowledge others' approaches, you build a platform for a field, and that's the goal. Sarah? Yeah, I mean, from my viewpoint, it's you know, a great system that allows different kinds of math to be put inside. That's, that's a critical piece right there. Okay. So the question is, is I guess, um, is that going to be, say, have an open API, or are they going to be able to plug in different uh, kinds of uh, effects on, on, on that system? Yeah, and that's. Or algorithms to run inside that system. So that's a key. That's an absolute key to this. And so the entire thing is going to be an open source. And have ex the, the simulator itself is going to be really simple. I mean, think of if you remember your your array algebra from school. You know, you, you multiply rows and columns together, right? And that's what Varicelli was doing in 1953. That's really it. I mean, and it's going to be every cell is addressable. So if a creature is made up of 32 by 32 by a thing, some of the cells are say what state I'm in. Other cells say, I'm sticky, and I'm sticky by this much. Or other ones might say, get away from me, I'm a, repel I'm a repeller. And, and anyone could plug into that cell and decide how to compute that value. So for instance, Turlos F-reps could be functional representations, could be actually plugged in not only to compute the values and the relationships, to show the 3D geometry, because that's what the system does, but to operate 3D printing to actually print a view of what is in there which is getting to this vision. Even though we're printing with sort of, um, you know, they're not living things, it's, it's printing a, a static, it's printing a sculpture. But perhaps in three or four years and we're all done, if we be able to work together, you know, his lordship will come to the lab and will say, look, you know, your lordship, just push the button. So he pushes the button and stuff is happening and all kinds of particles are going on the screen and a cute thing emerges and says, would you like a copy for the manor table? Right. So push that button, so it pushes that button, and out it comes out of Turlis engine. And you send him away happily with this thing that he can then talk about at dinner for years to come. So that, that would be a, a funny way of showing this entire vision of what they like. You can map it both ways, really. You can map it from the standpoint of a bunch of very even cells, anything, or you can also map it from sort of a more collaborative algorithm, which is effort of function based. So we have a series of functions applied in the space and we'll see what happens. So, so. And by building a, yeah. building a truly open system, anyone can experiment. That would be. I think we need to do a time check now because this person needs to try to move the one minute. Is there one last question for the question and there would be actually there's two answers one is the evil grid origins version would be you can't get in muck around it you know it's it's running and it's running on automatic it's very much like SETI at home or whatnot all run through the Berkeley Boeing network of skull there might be another version and people at various science museums have talked to me about this where it's the intelligent designer player on God version where you can go in and 
you can try to make things occur. And what's interesting is there will be a huge understanding of how difficult it is to, from these quanta, to actually make something that's organized, especially since everything's wiggling and moving around. It's not nanotechnology. It's, this, is, this is the world of biochemistry. So people could download a kit and, and experiment for hours, and people like me would spend half their lives on this and try to get something to happen. Now, of course, what was interesting is if, if someone actually generated something phenomenally complex that had could reproduce itself and whatever and divert it and look, Richard Dawkins came in and said, I'm declaring this to be worthy of study or something. That would be a huge question for, for humanity. It's not going to come out of Spore and other games because they're not designed to do this. And, and frankly, artificial life simulations are boring. They're not very gameable. That's what Will Wright says. So there could be the two versions in, in parallel. And, and then you would say, well, well, the evil grid that ran another 10 years, it generated something that this kid generated through his brain. And, and he jumped. He did intelligent design. He did technogenesis. He did intelligenesis. But the thing generated a similar thing anyway. So uh, you know, this is a huge question, right? This, so I'm hoping this will emerge to be one of sort of the questions of the 21st century, like the Human Genome Project was was for the last century. This could be one of those uh, big, big, what do they call them, the grand ideas. Right?